Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Women at the Riverside County Jail in California just finished a 16-day hunger strike called in response to sexual harassment by guards. Prisoners also pointed to retaliation some of them had suffered after reporting harassment. They called off the strike after the administration acceded to some of their demands. Indianapolis is building a new 3,000-bed so-called criminal justice center that will combine the Marion County Courts, a mental and physical health assessment and intervention center, and a jail. The center will be operated publicly. It's designed to house inmates who are subject to recidivism because of mental health and substance abuse problems. 40% of the current jail's prisoners have mental health problems and 85% have substance abuse issues. The center is to be built on a site that was used before by a gas and coke facility that produced coal tar, naphthalene, light oil, water gas, molten sulfur, ammonium sulfate, and dyes. The property is contaminated with volatile organic compounds, semi-volatile organic compounds, PCBs, and ammonium nitrate and nitrite. Though an April 2019 report by a consultant concluded that, quote, an unreasonable risk to human health and the environment does not appear likely, unquote. If remediation systems are installed and operated properly, some officials, including judges who will be working in the center, have expressed doubts. This week, we hear reflections from members of the MOVE organization. Speaking at the 2019 Fight Toxic Prisons Convergence, they give their thoughts on the past and current struggles of the MOVE family members behind bars. Mike Africa Jr., who was born in prison, speaks about the MOVE organization and having his parents on the inside during most of his life. His mother, Debbie Africa, tells a story about birthing Mike Jr. in prison and successfully keeping him for several days in her prison cell, unknown to prison authorities. Mike Africa Sr. also shares information about the MOVE organization and tells the story of Chuck Africa, who is still imprisoned. Here they are. On the move! So, my name is Michael Africa Jr. I'm a member of the MOVE organization, and these are my parents. For over 40 years, the MOVE organization has been engaged in trying to get our people out of prison. We have been through fights with the police and law enforcement. People have gone to prison. People have protested countless hours at rec centers and churches and synagogues. And people have been speaking at different places in schools and all over the country and outside of the country too. The MOVE organization have been fighting these toxic prisons as long as the MOVE organization has been in existence. We have been fighting the wrongs that the cops have done, done to people. We have been fighting against all of the crime, against the air, against the water, against the soil. We have been fighting against the crimes, uh, fighting the crimes against animals. And for that, we were punished for it by the system. We were put in prison. Our people was beat, uh, pregnant women beat into miscarriage. We have seen so many traumas 
and horrific situations as a result of us being revolutionaries to make a better world for everybody, including the people that are fighting against us. The organization has been around for almost 50 years, and over 40 of those years has held, uh, uh, the police, the system has held our people in prison. Today is a very special day for me. It's a very special day because within those 40 years we have been fighting to get our people home from prison. Today is the one year anniversary when we went to pick my mom up from prison. We're doing a lot of firsts together. Today is also Father's Day, and this is the first Father's Day that I got to be home with my dad. Our story is a very unique story. As a friend of mine, Tommy, told me, my friend Tommy, he said, Mike, you're the only person in the world who has this story. And I said, that, that can't be true. He said, who else do you know that was born in prison, mother and father been in prison all your life, and then you went to the prison that, to go get them out of prison? Who else do you know that's been through that, that's experienced that, that lived that? And I said, I don't know. He said, that's unique. I said, yeah, I guess so. It doesn't feel that spectacular to me because for me, it's just been my life. My mom talks about when I was born and how I was born in that prison cell that I was born in 1978. And to me, it sounds like she's talking about somebody else. Um, we have so many experiences within our lives uh, that are so extremely powerful experiences, but because these experiences so, are so common within our family, it doesn't seem that like it's that big of a deal. But when I see the work that people have done, people like you guys coming out to these events like yesterday and the day before that and continuously throughout the years, those are very important things to me because I remember when it was not this way. I remember a time when MOVE was not accepted, when we would go into places in an auditorium just like this one and maybe two people there and they may be our family members. But seeing these gatherings and seeing these people in the support building the way it is, is inspiring to me and it gives me motivation and encouragement to keep on moving. And this is one of the reasons why we came up with this shirt, Never Give Up. Because had we given up, our people would not have come home from prison. So we must continue the fight. We must continue in this revolution. We must continue with the movement so that other people can come home. My mom's brother, her younger brother is in prison and he, go, he comes up for parole in December. And he's been denied parole for the last 10 years. He is a colon cancer survivor. He's done 15 rounds of chemotherapy. Chuck Africa has been in prison since he was 18 years old and now he's 59. And what is happening is 
the state is trying to use these situations with these prisons to distract people and take away from the message that people have. They're using these prisons as a way to separate families and weaken the family structures so that people are uh, uh, scattered and not focused on doing what's right because they're so distracted and pulled so many different ways. And we must fight for our, our, our people that's in prison and we must also maintain the original reason why the people that's in prison started fighting in the first place because we're dealing with a system that does not care about us. We're, we're talking about a system that would rather the, the people that's in prison be, they'd rather them die in prison than to say that they're innocent and let them go home. So we must continue with this revolution. We must continue with this fight. The people need us just as much as we need them to keep on setting those good examples that gives us the energy to push onward even when we feel like it's been a long time. Because time doesn't matter. The people that are still in prison, they need to come home. The people that are fighting on the streets need to continue to protest to bring those people home. I could talk all day and all night about our people being in prison and how we need to get them out. But I'd rather let you hear from my mom and see what she had to say about her, her example and her experience. <laughs> Uh, thanks, Mike. <laughs> um, well, I'll tell you one thing. It has been a journey. It has been more than a journey. It has been, it has been a fight. And while it has been a fight, it also has been real for a lot of other people, too, because this fight ain't just for move. It is for everybody. It is for the poor, the people that are unfortunate. It is for people of color. It is for the air, the water, the soil. Um, John Africa's fight for freedom is for freedom for all of life. It's not just a separate part of life. It's not just human life. It's not just animal life. It's not just plant life. It is all of life. And that's how we started the above ground chapter of MOVE in Philadelphia. Uh, I want to say 1974 is when I joined MOVE. And since then, it has just been an ongoing battle because the city of Philadelphia just didn't really want us to want us to actually do that kind of work. So they kind of got, they sort of like diverted the whole issue. Like Mike was saying, let's stay on course. Don't let the system pull us off of our square and pull us off, off of our course by using these prisons to divert people from what they're really about. Um, I, I was in prison for 40 years. I was just released last year. What today was the first was the first year anniversary, and like Michael said, it's a special day for him and a special day for me. Um, it's been a long, long, long haul, but for some reason, it don't seem that long. You know, um, I think it's just because the glue that keeps us together is what keeps it from be seeming like a long time. But when I hear Michael tell stories about you know, himself and him growing up and see the people he's been long times friends with for 40, 20 years and 30 years. I'm thinking, wow, it has been a long time. But um, me and my husband, Mike Sr. here, we've been 
we were together for since we were 16 years old, actually 14, but then 16, consistently. And um, we didn't really like each other at the beginning. <laughs> it kind of grew out of a, one of those, uh, I can't stand your relationships. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but eventually we both joined MOVE together in 1974. And we've been here ever since. And out of that came our son, and we have we also have other children. We have uh, other three other daughters, and um, you know they've been supportive of us also. Uh, Mike Jr., like he said, was born in a prison cell because I was eight and a half months pregnant when I was sent to prison in 1978. And uh, well, they just never knew. They never knew I had a baby in jail. So I had him for a couple of days before they even realized it. But that was my intention. It wasn't a thing of, um, well, that was just so awful. You know, she had a baby in prison. No, that's what I wanted to do because I didn't want to be in the hands of those people who had years before or shortly before done some really awful, horrific things to move people, move women, and move children um, during the years before we were arrested in 1978. So I intentionally made it a point not to tell them when I was going to have him because I didn't want him or myself in the hands of the people who had once um, been brutal to us. Um, so anyway, um, when I was about to have the baby, Janine was in my room. Well, we were cellmates because they didn't have enough rooms in isolation to keep all of us separate. And it was eight of us at the time. We only had six rooms. So. Um, when I was about to have Michael Jr., I said, Janine, I'm getting ready to have the baby, right? And she was supposed to be to watch and make sure nobody came and saw me. And I was very, very quiet. Now, somebody, some women say, how the heck did you do that? Be quiet, trying to have a baby. I said, sheer will. It was sheer will because I was determined, determination not to let them know. And, and I did. So we all got together. Um, well, once I had, once I had him, uh, you know, he was a little noisy sometimes. So my sister would just get up on the step of my cell and just make noise or start singing. She was singing glory, glory, hallelujah or something like that. So that they wouldn't hear him cough or sneeze or, you know, when he was fussing. And, um, but they still never, they never knew it. They never knew it. Um, one of the things that we did after I had him was I had to make a decision. I had to make a really, really, really hard, tough decision. And that was whether we wanted to, whether I wanted to actually tell them that I had him so that I felt like he was safe so that people would know it or if I wanted to keep them, you know, as long as I could, you know, for my own reasons, for my own natural causes for him, for his own natural bonding. And like I said, it was a really, really tough decision. Um, so we did keep him for a while, but after a while I decided, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a good idea because we didn't know whether at some point they would come in and find them, what would happen after that. And I was just scared because, I mean, this is the early 70s. This is, I mean, this is the late 70s. And, you know, it was just nothing nice living as a, um, 
a re revolutionary. It wasn't nothing nice living as anybody who um, resisted any kind of law enforcement or any resisted anything wrong that law enforcement was spitting out um, or the administrators of it mostly. But it just wasn't something that I just was willing to risk having them come find a baby in a cell. And so we decided that um, my sister Janet was gonna go out in court, go up in court because we were, our preliminary hearings, which is like your hearings before you're actually sent to trial, they were held in the House of Correction. We weren't even, we didn't even go to City Hall. And that was unnormal to begin with. So being that our hearings were held at the House of Correction, um, it was easy access. So when Janet went to court, you know, she went to tell him, well, first I sent a note to Mike Sr. because we, we were all split up into groups to go to court. And she gave the note to Mike Jr., I just, Mike Sr., and I just told him, uh, you know, that I had the baby when I had him and that he was fine, I was fine, and his name was Michael and Michael Jr. And also, Janet put out in court that I had had a baby, but the judge didn't believe it, so he asked the officers. And of course, they lied and said, um, oh, no, 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 I, I, we just saw her, and she was, you know, she was nine months pregnant, she was, she was big and pregnant, no, she, it didn't happen. You know, well, finally, they had to come off that lie because as they came back downstairs, he, the judge wanted to know, was this true? And he came back, the officers came back downstairs, and they saw that I had a baby in the cell, and they was like, oh, my goodness, they just couldn't believe it. Well, I wasn't gonna sue him or nothing because that was my intention anyway. So I was, it, there was no blame. There was no blame at all. But they were nervous because they didn't know what might happen if, you know, if I did decide to sue him for some reason. So anyway, um, that's really the story of um, Michael Jr. being there. He says he remembers a lot of it because he was there. <laughs> I don't know about that, but he might. You know, he's pretty smart. <laughs> he remembers a lot of things. But um, anyway, it was, uh, it was just one of those days, like I had a, a hard decision to make and it was really, it was heartbreaking. It was just, it was really, really heartbreaking that I had to give him, you know, to my family. And, um, but now it's heart fulfilling because now, I mean, we are here together. And like he said, at 15 years old, this man started with the, you know, just going through the whole legal process and just figured out what he needed to do to bring his parents home. And he got together with this very young lawyer who wasn't even a lawyer at the time. Um, and they just set out to just be determined and never ever give up. And they came back and got me and his father. <laughs> So I'm pretty long-winded, and like Mike said, you know, he could sit here and talk for a while, and so can I. So we're gonna give it to Mike Jude Sr., who's not much of a big talker, but <laughs> unless he has a lot to say. Okay. All right, on a move. All right, um, uh, people tonight has been talking about the importance of prison reform or uh, getting people out of prison, the juvenile lifers, and uh, toxic prisons and well the move organization has been speaking about this since 1970 and since 1970 we've been under huge attack 
by the, uh, the reform world system. And um, we get to tell our story over and over again. Um, well, not for that long, because I've only been out seven months. But um, uh, the 40 years I spent in prison, I was writing these stories. And uh, I've been telling this story. And uh, we've had the opportunity to travel around the country uh, since we've been out. But the uh, issue that Mike spoke on earlier about Chuck, um, we can tell our story. Chuck hasn't been able to tell his. And as Debbie said, I met her when she was 14. At the time, Chuck, her little brother, was eight. Chuck was a firebrand then. When he got some information, when he got the information of John Africa, and about revolution, about activism. Chuck's been on the move ever since. Um, the first time I went to a demonstration for a move, I was in the Marine Corps. I was on leave. And Chuck had been arrested uh, and put in jail for 10 days for contempt of court because the judge didn't like the information he gave him about true education. He had Chuck in, in court for truancy. Chuck was telling him he was getting a true education and move. He was getting a revolutionary education and move. And the judge put him in jail for 10 days. Um, I wasn't particularly active socially um, in socialism at the time, um, but that was the first demonstration I went to because I saw the injustice in it. Chuck, at 13, uh, at 15 by this time, um, stood strong. Um, in 1977, we had a major confrontation with police. Chuck was strong. Chuck remains strong. You know, um, throughout our four, uh, we had a hundred year sentence. And Chuck selfishly tried to take the whole case himself. This is the resolve of our brother. This is why we fight for our brother. We had two people already die in prison. Merle in 1998 and Phil in 2015. They wanted the same end for us all. If they didn't do it on the street, if they didn't do it while they was bombing us, they try to do it while we're in prison. Uh, it's a strange coincidence that all our people who, who eat so well, who activate so well, who's mentally strong, are all coming down with these cancers. We know the prisons are toxic, but that's a hell of a coincidence. That Merle had cancer, that Phil had cancer, and now Chuck has it. You know, and ain't no telling what we have, you know, even as we try to uh, put out this information. So the importance of Chuck being focused on now uh, he was just turned down for parole as we were released. Um, so it is vitally important that that, in, that attention be given to our young brother, you know, who fights for his life and who fights for freedom. On the move, Chuck. On the move, Chuck. So those petitions are back there. Please sign. Please uh, sign. Um, they don't, uh, 
obviously try to humanize us, they try to demonize us. And you spend five minutes around that guy. You know, he's a musician, he's intellectual, he reads everything, um, he plays the piano, um, and he was a state champ in boxing, so he's no, you know, Chuck's a tough guy too. So um, anyway, as uh, Debbie said, switching gears, as Debbie said, yeah, we, we've known each other since 14. Um, I wasn't a politically aware guy and I didn't um, have any uh, intentions on really doing any kind of social activist work. But um, her family was connected to MOVE and so I met and heard some of the information um, from the teachings of John Africa and uh, I felt compelled to at least pay attention to the information I was hearing. Uh, when he was talking about animal abuse and, and the rights of animals, when he was talking about environmental issues, and I seen how people was coming at them about talking about these things. And while, while I wasn't necessarily attracted to it at first, I couldn't understand why um, they were coming at move so hard, so, so viciously. Um, when if you're just calling them crazy people, why, why don't you just ignore them then? Why are you, you know, why are you beating them? Why are you shooting at them? Why are you, you know? And I just couldn't reconcile this in my mind. Going to that demonstration about Chuck, uh, they didn't even want us to talk. You know, we got from the uh, Moves bus, which they took to uh, demonstrations, right onto the paddy wagon, we started with beat. You know, and as I said, I was on Marine uh, on on leave from the Marine Corps. So with these kind of examples, compelled me to look and investigate further. And the further I looked, the more I saw, and the more I saw, the more I was compelled to speak out as they did. And um, one telling example was uh, they had this local show in Philadelphia called the Mike Douglas Show. It was an early talk show. And Mike Douglas had a monkey on his show, you know. And the monkey, you know, he got tired of the lights or whatever, you know, and he started doing what monkeys do. You know, he's running around, he was jumping on, the, you know. And they had the cops come in and club him, beating with nightsticks and handcuffs. So John Africa's response was, uh, Eddie Africa went to the studio the next day on his next show handcuffed Mike Douglas while he was doing his show and gave him some information about animal rights. You know, so that's how Moo's response was, right? So he didn't beat him and club him, just gave him some information about it. You know, so um, then Moo was uh, also demonstrating, demonstrating against the schools and the parole board for, you know, their discrimination and um, well this is how I got involved and um, you know along the way you know I was with my girl here you know my wife later become my wife and uh, together you know we uh, endeavored to speak out against the system and everything that y'all were talking about tonight about prisons about environment about uh, just social activism we've been involved in since early 70s and we continue because it's necessary to continue.
This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at kiteline at wfhb.org. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.